Shut up and sit down. Welcome to the Edu Third Space podcast, where we address the important questions what is education? Where does it occur? And who gets to decide? Hello, Edu Third Space listeners. Today I am speaking with Kristen Otto about education in museums. Kristen and I know each other through yoga, um, but today she's going to talk about her experience as a cultural anthropologist working in museums. We talk about material culture, how different types of museums are set up to learn, and the curators behind exhibits. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, and please leave us a review so that it makes it easier for other people to find us. Oh, hello, Kristen. Hi. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? It's (laughs) so good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so kind of just to get us started, if you can just give kind of an overview of your experience working in the education sector, obviously you're, you know, on what they would call the informal learning side of education, but Mm -hmm. if you could just give us an overview as well as um, what you're up to now and the focus of your research. Yeah, so yeah, my... um on paper, I guess you would say I'm a PhD candidate in uh, the Department of Anthropology at Indiana University. And uh, there I'm studying cultural anthropology, which means, you know, I'm interested in people, I'm interested in the ideas people have, beliefs, how we communicate with each other, how we share these beliefs with others, and uh, that sort of thing. And within that, I'm interested in material culture, so stuff like the, the things we, we make and we create uh, when we interact with the, the world around us. And I would consider myself to be a museum anthropologist in that I uh, do a lot of my work examining those questions about people and, and, and their lives through muse- the lens of museums. So that involves work with museum collections, the, the things that are stored in museums, but also the museum institution itself. So the education that happens in in museums, the research that happens in museums, teaching, uh, those sorts of things within the institution. So my my specific research, that's very broad, you know, obviously. Anthropology being the study of, you know, humans and people, there's like 5 million different ways you could take that. So my very narrow (laughs) uh, part of of what I do is uh, I study material culture and repair. So thinking about why people repair things, why they fix them, and what it means when people do that. So I work with one particular style of mask that is originally worn and performed by women in West Africa. It's called a soe mask. And uh, it's a pretty famous mask worldwide because it's one of the uh, only known historical cases in the whole continent of Africa, you know, with uh, so many different cultural practices in which um, women are the ones that wear and perform uh, in the masquerade. So it's become really famous worldwide, which means it's collected really widely around the world. And in my research, what I've done is go to a lot of different museum collections and examine these masks. And I found that uh, the overwhelming majority of them have been repaired at least once, often multiple times over the course of their lives as objects. And uh, that was really interesting to me because no one had really been talking about repair before. So then I paired that kind of work with objects in museums with 
research with people that repair. So I got to work with an artist in Sierra Leone that has repaired these, working with people like art restorers in the Western markets with traders and dealers and with conservators in museums to think about repair as something that happens uh, many times over the life of the object. And it's a way that people kind of form that object to be what they want it to be. And uh, that meant that I spent a lot of time in and out of museums, connecting the stuff in museums to, to things outside of it. So uh, that's what my research is. But then also because I work in museums, I do a lot of sort of practical things in museums too. So I've been interning in museums since I was an undergrad. So gosh, that's like, oh, now I feel old. <laughs> that was a while ago. <laughs> no, like about 10 years that I've been kind of more formally working in museums, but I was talking about this with my family, you know, a little while back that um, I, I didn't think I wanted to go into anthropology when I went into my undergrad. Uh, but then I started doing it, loved it. Then I found out about the work that anthropologists do in museums and loved that. And that's how I ended up on this track. But looking back, like I went to an absurd amount of museums as a child, like, mm. <laughs> like kids aren't always like super into wandering around museums. And I loved it. Like one of my favorite things to do was go in historic house museums or, or go to different museum exhibits. So the writing was kind of, you know, on the wall there. So I've had museums in my life for a while, but what I do now is a lot of research, you, you know, the, the work that I do for my dissertation, but then also um, one of the more recent positions I had, one was at the Eskenazi Museum of Art. So mm -hmm. you've been there, right? Uh, the, the, art, <laughs> uh, the art museum on IU's campus and I worked there for one year for my funding in graduate school and what I did there was inventory so I uh, they were about to move their collection for their big renovation you know mm -hmm. so I inventoried the whole collection to make sure everything was where it was supposed to be that we had everything that we were supposed to everything was documented and photographed and but then I didn't exhibit when I was there so I curated an exhibit, well, we can talk about that later on, what that involves, but um, I curated an exhibit on repair in African arts. And then I also curated an exhibit for the Mathers Museum that we can talk about. So the Mathers Museum is the ethnographic museum on campus. Mm -hmm. And that's the one I've been most closely tied to most of my time, although I've not like formally worked there, but um, been a research associate there. And I curated an exhibit on Ghanaian figurative coffins. Mm -hmm. So those are, coffins that are in the shape of like fish and chickens and shoes and you know all these different um, things that uh, represent the life of the, the deceased person. So I curated an exhibit on that one. That one was more involved. It was a pretty big, ex big exhibit and I did research in Ghana for that with artists that make these coffins and uh, it was up in fall of 2018 I believe it was yeah for a semester. So I've curated those exhibits and now I also do some work um, with the board for the Council for Museum Anthropology, which is sort of the overarching um, uh, part of the American Anthropological Association, um, the subset of museum anthropologists, basically, I'm on the board for that as a student representative. So I do work on uh, mentoring projects for students and thinking about careers and, you know, stuff like that in museums. So I got my hands in a lot of different pots. I guess, yeah, wow. as we do. <laughs> as <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really exciting. Actually, mm -hmm. that's one of the things that draws me to a university is all mm -hmm. of the multiple different things that you get to do. Yeah, exactly. With its many downsides that come, but you know. Because then you end up doing multiple <laughs> things and you're like, oh God, there's too many things. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and then you teach yoga too and you know it's all good yeah, yeah. but you know love that mm-hmm. <laughs> um okay so there are several things i want to go to back to that you talked about but um first so why study repair and what do you learn from repair like why people are repairing particular things um, or why they repair generally from kind of a learning standpoint I guess Mm -hmm. like is is it to pass on culture or you know something uh, yeah those lines Mm -hmm. that's a good question um so uh, part of it has to do with thinking about uh how we think about objects so a lot of times we think of objects as being pretty stable, like as not, as not changing very much um, over, the, like they're made and then they just kind of exist as a thing. Uh, but they, they're not stable over time. Like I could, I was just taking a drink of water. I could have dropped that glass and it would break. And um, then I guess I could try and repair it, but you know, who tries and repairs, <laughs> who tries to repair a, a glass. But if I were to sit there and try and repair that glass, um, it, that would be a statement, right? Like you'd be mm-hmm. like, why are you doing that? You're spending a lot of effort, like trying to fix something that you could just go get another one of. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why spend so much time and effort trying to do that? Uh, you would, is it sentimental to you? Like, did your grandmother give you that, that glass? You know, that, that would be the questions that you would ask because we don't spend a whole lot of time, like maintaining a lot of stuff around us today and in, in today's day and age. So uh, repair, kind of constitutes an investment in the object into being like, I want this thing to, to continue to exist in the world. I don't want it to be thrown away. I want it to continue in some capacity. So I'm going to use my skills and my time and my effort materials to try and, and, and um, fix it in some way. Uh, but then thinking more about it in the sort of museum context and the, the learning context, uh, I, I mentioned that I study repair sort of broadly. So I'm thinking about it that happens. So these masks are used and performed in West Africa. And when they're there, they are part of this pretty big masquerade performance and, and cultural tradition for these women in which they're sort of a physical manifestation of, of a spirit, of a powerful spiritual source. And, and the mask and the whole costume are part of that. Um, and the masks are made out of wood. And, and they're, they're intended to fit over the head, so sort of like a helmet that fits over your head. Uh, but if something's made out of wood and you're in a tropical climate, um, that doesn't, <laughs> wood, wood changes, mm-hmm. you know, and also it could be dropped, you know, it could break, you know, stuff happens. But a spirit can't break, mm-hmm. is the, <laughs> like, so if, if the, the mass were to be broken, that is uh, a sign that it's not a, a spiritual object anymore to the people mm. that see it you can't see something that's damaged be a spiritual object for them. Mm. so repairing it continues on that that performative tradition because it allows it to continue to be used and a lot of these spirits had individual names so um it's sort of like you, you wouldn't want to give up um performing that mass the the carver that i talked to his name is john goba he passed away in 2018 that I talked to him in, in 2017 and um, he said it's really hard for the women to, to to condemn a mask like you have to you have to repair it uh, but then also these masks have been really widely sold around the world and now they're in museum collections all over the world mm-hmm. so uh, because 
they're so closely tied with women, this means that they are, you know, if, if a museum wants to tell uh, visitors about women in Africa, they'll be like, oh, let's get one of those masks that women wear, you know, <laughs> so they're, they're all over the place. I mean, literally, I've never found a museum that has a collection of objects from Africa that doesn't have at least one. The, the biggest collections, institutional collections outside of West Africa are the Martin Anosa Johnson Safari Museum in Chinook, Kansas, which has like 40. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the Queensboro Community College Art Gallery in Queens, New York. They have like 40 as well. So um, they're all over the place. <laughs> A lot of them. And, and they're used in this, this education way in museums. They're used to talk about women and they're used to talk about Africa. Uh, but they're not used as that spiritual object anymore. Mm. But they still continue to be repaired after they leave mm. Africa. So a trader might repair it so they can sell it. Um, a restorer might repair it for a private collector who has it in this house, you know, as, as um, for them to continue having it as like an art piece in their head. Uh, a conservator might repair it in a museum so it can be put on exhibit. So what do all those repairs mean now that it's not being used for what it originally was uh, used for in West Africa and talking to all these different people that repair showed me how people are kind of um, reinterpreting the mask into its new context so uh, as the mask moves into like a, a western collecting context uh, value becomes really important you know monetary value when it when it's sold and so repair creates that value and it, and it fits the mask into the this context of an art market uh, a conservator is trying to use it uh, or you know a museum is using it in this sort of underneath its mission of whether it's an art museum an anthropology museum any other type of museum uh, trying to use it for this education reason either in research in the collection or in an exhibit for a visitor to see and they want it to be an authentic you know representation of that cultural practice or that artistic tradition and so repair uh, helps it fit that that vision for the museum. So uh, it, it's just a way of continuing to adapt that object as it circulates and then it means that how people view the object changes. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I hadn't, because when you're a patron of a museum, uh -huh. you're there to learn. So that's kind of how you think about objects is you don't think about these different people and why they're interested or repairing or setting up an mm -hmm. exhibit or preserving or anything like that mm -hmm. so to the patron it's just i am here and i get to learn about this period of time well and maybe yeah and that we can talk about that with museums um you know museums are complicated places in which you know people sometimes think that they're there for learning and that they're specifically mm -hmm. there for learning and then there's this term that's often batted around with museums um, and, and some other types of cultural institutions, but um, edutainment. Have you heard this? No. At edutainment. So uh -huh. edutainment, like at, at entertaining Entertain. education. <laughs> entertaining education. And there's some people that think that museums are too far now on the entertainment side of things mm. and not enough on the education side of things. And is there a balance? And, you know, I think it's sometimes a silly question, like, something that's educational can be entertaining as well. Like we don't oh, have right. to be, you know, like uh, black and white here. Um, but uh, a museum is also not a textbook. Like it, it's not mm -hmm. um, an encyclopedia. It's not a dictionary. It's, mm -hmm. um, you know, museums are biased things that, you know, they're presenting a particular point of view. And 
whether the person comes in just to experience, you know, seeing something that's different from their daily life or mm -hmm. whether um, they come in to like learn about West Africa, a museum kind of has to meet them like wherever mm -hmm. they are and you have to provide an experience for them, whatever their sort of um, intention was coming into the exhibit. Mm -hmm. So that's where sort of some of the curatorial vision for exhibitions comes in because you can't do everything. So, right. so you have to like decide what's most important, what's the most important story I want to tell and what do I hope people can take away from it? And, and how can I help them, you know, engage with this topic and engage with these things in collections, uh, but not force them to think a certain thing <laughs> when, mm -hmm. when, they, when they leave. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's challenging. It's what, you know, professors have to do in classes and what, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, a lot of different areas of education have to do. But people don't often think about that with museums because the people that visit a museum rarely see the people that work in the right. museum. <laughs> you, you know, museums are filled with people all the time, but the people that, um, there's a separation between the people that um, visit the exhibits and the people that make them. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of a function of, of having objects, you know, presented in that way. And um, museums have been doing a lot of work to be more active spaces and to be a little bit more transparent about the the practices that happen behind the scenes and, and why it's important to know about those, but um, it can sometimes be challenging. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I always think of like teaching, like even yoga teaching, you know, mm -hmm. you're kind of a, you're an entertainer in a way, mm -hmm. like you're putting mm -hmm. on an act, like you can't be, you know, I taught in elementary school for a while too, like you can't be yourself in a lot of ways mm -hmm. because you're there for, you know, people so yeah it is interesting to think about that you don't actually get to see this um performer if you will mm -hmm. setting mm -hmm. up their space for you you just yeah. only see their space yeah and it's um you know this was a topic that came up quite a bit in the basically the 80s and 90s you know in, in theory like if we're thinking about a moment in which you know anthropologists and and you know, a lot of other scholarly traditions in general were kind of like, oh, you know, <laughs> the stuff we do is subjective and mm -hmm, it is, mm -hmm. you know, um, political and we are biased in what we say and, and that's important that we recognize that. So there was this moment, you know, sort of, they call it the crisis in, <laughs> in anthropological mm -hmm. research in, around that time in which people were like, oh, ethnography isn't like a, uh, the truth, you know, we're, we're not, we're not, um, finding truth out. We're investigating things and we're presenting a subjective point of view. And, and this is our, you know, interpretation of, of something. And museums also went through that same thing of mm -hmm. an exhibit isn't a textbook. It's not, and, it, and textbooks are partial too. So, but, you know, what we're presenting is just because we're presenting something with a concrete object, you know, like museums are about collections and they are about objects a, a lot of the time, although intangible stuff can come into it, but uh, they are about objects and we're presenting something that's concrete. And it can sometimes seem like because we're presenting something concrete, the knowledge that we're presenting is also concrete, which is usually not, not the case. So um, there were a lot of times in which people were thinking about how can exhibits be, uh, can we help visitors understand that an exhibit is not the, you know, the only way of seeing, mm -hmm. seeing a topic, kind of like you can read several different books on one topic and they all won't say the same thing, the same thing about uh, museum exhibits. But, you know, and a book has an author mm -hmm. on, 
like the the, the bottom usually curators don't put their names right. on on a, a exhibit label you know it'll be in like a small thing you know or something mm -hmm. or in the catalog that is is written about the exhibit uh but usually you don't see them you don't see the curator wandering around the exhibit space most of the time like answering people's questions or, or things like that although they do that now sometimes so um, there's a lot of things museums are doing now to try to make it seem more of an active space and and to show the people that that produced it so yeah <clears throat> and that's fascinating because with an author you can interrogate their ideas you know mm -hmm. who they are like you could read other books that mm -hmm. they or you could read someone else's perspective who's critiqued mm -hmm. that book whatnot but you can't really interrogate the perspective of the curator so yeah, you kind well, of have wait. to just consume yeah yeah and i mean you can because curators do it all the time but it's <laughs> it's hard for like the casual museum visitor to right. to, to to know to do that um I mean, there's so many, just take the West African cultural context, for example, there's like, uh, what's a good example? The city of Chicago, a good example. So um, you've got the Field Museum, which is a natural history museum that has an anthropology department or anthropology researchers within it. And a lot of natural history museums have that in which they're printing, presenting history of both the human and biological worlds, you know, in, in a museum the field museum has an exhibit dedicated to africa like the people of africa mm -hmm. uh, but then you've got the art museum the art institute of chicago mm -hmm. that has an exhibit dedicated to africa you've got the Dusable museum which is african-american history you've mm -hmm. got the block museum of art which is at northwestern which has a big collection of, of african art all of those exhibits are going to look entirely different mm -hmm. and probably tell you entirely different things uh, because they're underneath sort of a their, their museum's mission and their museum's um, ideals of, of what they, what type of education they're trying to do, what type of, of, of information they're prioritizing. Um, so the experience of being in all those exhibits is very, very different. Uh, the Africa exhibit at the Field Museum has a very particular point of view that's very, very different than the art museums, the Art Institute's Africa permanent gallery. You know, it's, it's like, to ends of a spectrum and there's a lot that happens you know in between them but, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah fascinating yeah so one of the things so just um to give a little bit of background so i did my student teaching um when i was preparing to become a licensed teacher in the mm -hmm. navajo nation Mm -hmm. um, and then as a grad student, I worked with pre-service teachers. So basically I worked, I was the instructor for the same program I went through. So preparing pre-service teachers to complete their student teaching in the Navajo Nation. And one of the most difficult things to do is to debunk the romantic idea of what it is to be um, native in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of what you run into is this idea of like i can't see this culture therefore it's frozen in time and i learned about it in school or in a museum mm -hmm. so kind of how do museums um if they do uh deal with that issue of trying not to freeze someone in time so you can yeah. learn about you can learn about historical features but also mm -hmm. learn about like what it is mm -hmm. to be navajo now mm -hmm. Yeah, that is like, you just asked like the main question that all museum professionals are trying to solve. So, you know, uh, I'm glad you're asking such easy questions. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, no, they're new yeah. to me, so. 
No, well, you hit the nail on the head there. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a time in which museums definitely were presenting cultures as very static, as, mm -hmm. as one thing, as unchanging. And um, that was both a function of the way that they were presenting it. So, you know, just having things in boxes or things in, in, in um, pedestals, things in, in cases and with just a label that says, you know, it's from these people and that's it, you know, you, and not learning much about what those people are like now, um, today, but also not having much of those people's voice, you know, it was literally, you know, whoever organized the exhibit just, you know, made stuff. And uh, thankfully most, I would say most museums today don't agree that that's the way we should be doing things. Yeah. So uh, that was a big part of the, the 20th century was everyone going, oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a bad way to do stuff. Uh, and, uh, but I will say that, but to back up a little bit, um, museums, as, as educational institutions, specifically with the understanding of, of anthropology and people, um, like anthropology as a discipline started in museums. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, there was in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, people were really, uh, in terms of, of how, where knowledge comes from, people had adopted kind of this sort of object-based epistemology. So basically mm -hmm. that objects are concrete, therefore they are concrete information. And that's what, how we can learn the most about people is from objects. And so that's where a, a lot of anthropology started was people that work in museums going out to places, doing uh, archeological digs or collecting from, from living cultures and, and bringing those things back to the museum. And that's how, uh, they would say, we're collecting knowledge, we're collecting things, and so therefore we can help understand these people or these practices by collecting the things from them. Obviously, as you probably well know from your work, that most of the time, or a lot, of, some of the time, those collecting practices were not very ethical or mm -hmm. uh, were not very collaborative, so they were pretty one-sided, mm -hmm. and uh, museums are working to address those, those historical inaccuracies and the violence that was done in those those cases and um, today still trying to, to work towards that but uh, now today how people that you're trying to present cultures as as more than just a static thing is I think try not to be as essentializing in your exhibit so um, which not every museum does this but uh, but some that you're not necessarily trying saying in your exhibit that this is the entirety of let's say the the coffins that i worked with um the the coffins that i did the exhibit on those are made and used by ga people in in ghana mm -hmm. i wasn't presenting like this is the every thought that every ga person has ever mm -hmm. had about death is, is is in these coffins and this is the only way that they think about death it was this is one way and and um this is one way that they deal with death and that they uh, try to remember the people that their loved ones is by making these coffins. And, but what helps with making it, you know, not as a static thing is when you can connect it to real people as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So I had a section that was the, the artists that make these. I had videos, mm -hmm. I had pictures, I had quotes, you know, from, from these people and saying these are real life people that have names that, you know, that make these. 
and that's been you know their their life's work to make these and this is why they do it and so people can can see the connection between the object and, and an actual person uh, but then also connecting the, the topics you're talking about to the person's life that's visiting that exhibit mm -hmm. because you know most people in exhibits uh, that visiting know that like in their own life is not essentialized that they're an evolving person mm -hmm. that they right. are, it, you know so if you can connect it to something they do then they can be like oh you know this is um uh while i don't process things in the same way as maybe this exhibit is presenting i can understand why someone would do that so uh in the exhibit i you know and this is something that people do a lot but at the end of the sort of main label the main label is where uh, you put like your main idea, basically, mm -hmm. and we can talk about how we do labels and exhibits because it's, it's mm -hmm. so hard. But like, <laughs> um, the main label at the end, uh, I said, uh, as you explore this exhibit, we encourage you to think about your own views on on death and and dying, and sort of what you take with you and what you leave behind. I think that was similar to the last sentence, which I'm realizing now is very morbid, but it was an exhibit about, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> about death, so it made sense at the time. And um, uh, just encouraging people to think about like how they remember uh, their loved ones. Like, yes, no, I don't make a coffin in the shape of a fish, even if my uncle was a fisherman. Like, I'm not mm, gonna, okay. I'm not gonna bury him in a coffin that shaped like a fish. But I might talk about fishing in the eulogy that I read at his funeral, or uh, we might some, say some things about uh, him as a father on the gravestone, you know, or something like that. And, and realizing that, oh, there are lots of people around the world that have to deal with death and we all deal with it in different ways. And, and, and that's one of the ways we can, can see, make connections to people around the world without saying that these people are trapped in the past in some way. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so thinking of this idea so it's the idea of not essentializing also making the exhibit relatable to the patrons do you uh you or just people mm -hmm. who curate in general know of or think about learning theories like how people learn when you're setting mm -hmm. up these exhibits mm -hmm. uh, that is a good question and for for the people listening um there are like so many there's so many different types of museums out there in the world and most of my experience has been with the anthropological side of things with museums of world cultures or with the sort of anthropology that happens in natural history museums and i've done some work with art museums as well but with the, the sort of side of non-western art which often is a very operates in a different way than the western art does in in art museums um but there's like so many different types of museums out there mm -hmm. there's you know, uh, historic house museums. I also, I don't, I forgot to mention this earlier, but you know, the Wiley House Museum on Indiana University's campus. I volunteered there for a year as a docent giving tours. And so this is a historic house museum, which is a very common type of museum in the US. Like a lot of people have them and uh, a lot of communities have them. And it's an entirely different type of museum because, you know, we've been talking so far about the sort of, the most expected or traditional model of exhibit of you walk into a museum building and then you walk into an exhibit space and then there's stuff, <laughs> you know, either in cases or uh, pedestals or in the case of the coffins, we had to just put them on the floor because they're so big, you know, like, but, but you know, there's stuff in an exhibit space and then you, you leave that museum. Uh, whereas house museums is literally you're, you walk into the exhibit 
you're like literally in it because it's a house. And, and so it's a very different experience being in someone in a home uh, than it is being in an exhibit space of a museum, like a gallery, you know. Um, and then there's things like living history museums. Did you ever go to Connor Prairie or? Yep, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or Colonial Williamsburg where uh, it's a, you know, entire outdoor setting where there's actors hired to, uh, to act as people from that time period. And you talk to them, a visitor can mm. talk to them like they're in that time period. You know, um, you don't do that really in anthropological museums very often because it, um, it's just a, a different thing. Uh, so there's lots of different ways of doing it. I would say when I've been doing exhibits, I can pretty much, I'll speak from my own experience. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that I was really drawing from any specific theory that I know of. Uh, one person actually that you should talk to uh, is Sarah Hatcher, and she's the director of education and programs at the Mallards Museum. Mm -hmm. And she's doing her PhD in education right now at IU. Okay. Um, and uh, so she might know more about this specifically than I did do but there are certain things that, to keep in mind when you're doing the exhibit and um it depends on the like the size of the place so when i curated the exhibit on the coffins for the malice museum i was sort of the lead curator but uh i collaborated with the chief curator of the mathers so she's the ellen sieber um she i, I was the curator because i did the research and i was coming up with the narrative for the exhibit but um, she, having worked in this museum much longer than me, would give me, you know, advice and, and read over my thoughts, you know, and, and give me feedback and stuff like that. But then I also worked a lot with Sarah. So um, most museums have a target audience. So an, an idea of the type of people that they tend to see in their exhibits and the type of people they're trying to reach with their exhibits. And with the Mountain Museum being a university museum, their target audience is sort of the, the classic undergrad. So mm -hmm. um, uh, that actually means it's a little bit different than um, some massive public museums, you know, like think Smithsonian or, or um, you know, the Louvre or literally any big museum that receives tons and tons and tons of visitors. They get a lot more diversity in the types of their visitors, which means they can't really target any one specific group with the type of message that they're writing because uh, that would leave out like, you know, another huge portion of, of the people that visit. Um, so I wrote my exhibit text when I, I'm writing the stuff that will be on the walls, um, which is one of the main sort of didactic ways in the exhibit of, of um, communicating information outside of just the, you know, object that's, on, that's there. Um, you're writing it for basically a freshman, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's walking into campus. So, um, uh, because you want it to be accessible to the, the most amount of, of people and you don't want to use jargon, like, um, mm -hmm. uh, because people are going to not know what you're talking about, uh, just in, in any other case, but, um, it, it has to be, because it's not just a university museum, it is also open to the public. It has to be open to, to anyone to come through and be able to read it and understand it. So, so that's a challenge with uh, uh, exhibit text, particularly when you're an academic and doing research and you're very used to writing in a particular way for academic audiences. And then you have to switch that for the way that you write in museums. It has to be very clear because you want people to, to get the main information that they, that about the, the topic that you're talking about has to be written a very clear way in a very understandable way and without too much complicated 
uh, sentence structures and vocabulary and stuff like that. But also it has to be like so insanely short. <laughs> That's the hardest part about museum texts. The exhibit, in my opinion, it, it's still valuable whether or not someone read for the mm -hmm. exhibit text because even just being in the space with objects that are um, different than what you, you see on a daily basis, that is still educational to me. Like mm -hmm. you could just looking at the thing is educational, but obviously there's some other things that um, I, as a curator, I think are important to get across. And that's how I'm kind of developing the narrative for the exhibit. This is what I hope people will learn, you know, from, from if they read every single word on the wall, this is what I hope people will learn. So, um, you have to break it down into different areas because you can't just put like a book, you know, on the wall in one section. It has to be paired up with the objects mm -hmm. and, and um, tell a story. And you have to think about how people walk around the exhibit space. When I did my exhibit, I worked also with the, the designer. So some museums will have uh, a designer or multiple designers that uh, work with the curator to on how not just the the words in the exhibit and the ideas in the exhibit, but how to physically arrange it and what it should look like. And so we have, um, well, he's the head of exhibits, but he does a lot of the the design. And because the Maddox Museum has kind of modular exhibit space, um, there were three entry points to my exhibit, which drove me bananas because <laughs> I was like, there's three different places someone can enter this thing. And it needs to make sense to them from any, uh -huh. Uh -huh. any place that they go in. They can't be like, what's happening? And then leave. You know, they have to, to be able to understand what's going on. So you can't also have, unless you have a one a unidirectional exhibit in which people are literally forced to walk in one direction, um, you can't have the text like build upon each other. Like you have to be able to understand from, from any, right. any place that you come in. Uh, so that's really hard. Uh, so basically... You know, people can write, have written entire books about these topics, but you have to condense it down into about like six paragraphs for, for an exhibit. And, and that's, that's all you get in, in the actual exhibit space. But then the other great thing about museums is that doesn't have to be the only thing. You can have performances, you can have talks, you can have tours, you can have videos in the exhibit. All these things can, can, can communicate even further uh, mm -hmm. than just what what the exhibit says. So I wouldn't say I um, I worked with a specific theory. There may be people that do in that context. It wasn't something I did, but Sarah did work with me quite a bit on my text on um, how can we make this a little more understandable or mm -hmm. a little bit more accessible to a particular audience that we're working with, um, and how can we make sure that it makes sense in in the broadest way possible. But when I was at the Wiley house, they did, I know they were, that was the one time that uh, the curator or the director, she's the director, was specific about a particular theory that they were working with, which I believe was social constructivism. It, it was basically because the Wiley house is a very different experience than, than the exhibit that I, I curated. You're in a house, you're walking around, mm -hmm. um, and there is no exhibit text on the wall. So the, the only way people are going to learn outside of just being in the house is, is by talking to, the, talking to me or one of the other docents about, about the house. And so the idea with the, the sort of social constructivist um, approach was to make it more of a conversation rather than a speech. So um, we didn't go around the house and give speeches about every room. You know, we weren't like, this is the living room and you know, list off all this information. 
every single time someone came in, at least I did, and I, I know most other people did, we asked people what they were interested in, what they wanted to learn about, and then tailor the tour around that, but then also uh, ask them questions throughout the, the exhibit, you know, um, and oftentimes people would be, make some connection between, you know, something that they were seeing and their own lives, like, in the Wiley house, the master bedroom is, is downstairs right next to the living room. And so everyone was like, I would never have my master bedroom right next to the living room. And I was like, well, why is that? Why, what's the, the sort of idea you have about that separation of space? And then kind of talk about based on the research that's been done about the house and about that historical time period, why people in the early 19th century might've chosen to, to have um, that, what was going on in their lives at that time that they, that they did that. So it, it gives the opportunity to make it a pretty collaborative between the person that say the one that has read the book on the Wiley house, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then the people that are visiting, uh, make it a collaborative sort of experience going through, going through the house. That's more difficult to do in the sort of traditional space when you don't have a tour guide wandering around all the time, mm-hmm. you know, and the visitor is kind of guiding themselves. So, yeah. So with that tour and it seems like just in general, it's really mm-hmm. more of a, um, self-directed learning like that's how we'd refer to mm-hmm. it in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. education is yeah but there also was important I mean we don't want someone to to leave that house and not know who President Wiley was okay. <laughs> but, you, know, <laughs> you know that there's, there's certain important things that we still got got across and then also things that you know if someone brought something up that maybe I thought that I could maybe challenge their belief about a, a particular uh, part of history, you know, or something like that, um, that get them to think a little bit more critically about their, their idea of history. That would be something you would do. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily entirely the, the person, the, the visitor driving everything that was said, but, uh, it definitely, I think was useful for the people that were visiting that they didn't feel like that they were, uh, being read a script as they walked around the house and that they were part of the, the, the experience of, of learning in that way. Yeah, so it seems like you try the best you can, you know, in, in a variety mm-hmm. of types of museums, like as you mentioned, they come mm-hmm. in all different um, forms, mm-hmm. but you try the best you can not to make learning passive. Yeah, definitely. And we're, I think in general, just making sure museums aren't, aren't passive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, uh, there's this uh, a famous article that uh, by a museum researcher is called Museum as Method, but it, it's a lot of, or there's another one called Museums as Process. It, it's about thinking of, of museums as, as a practice and, and not as a, a thing <laughs> that exists, which like we've been talking about is challenging, but it's also challenging for uh, while the people that work in it may, cont- may see it that way. Mm-hmm. It, museums have been acting not that way <laughs> for for a lot of, of history and also that you know it's an institution that can move slowly sometimes so it, it can be hard to to change every permanent exhibit you have because you need a lot of money to be able to do that it's expensive and also just the way museums look like think about think about the field museum mm-hmm. have you been to the field museum yeah, yeah. yeah what does it what does it look like Old. like from the outside what? Well, it's very, it's massive from the outside. Yeah, yeah, it's massive, uh, but like, does it remind you of something? 
Uh, like, oh, you see, you see what? I, yeah, there we go. Yeah, you yeah. see what I'm doing here? I'm doing yeah. social. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it's built. If, any, if anyone listening hasn't seen the Field Museum, just Google the Field Museum and look up a picture of it. And a lot of like major, huge museums in the U.S. were built like temples. So they're built like Greek and Roman temples. And um, because at the time people thought this is a temple of knowledge, right? Like. So we're going to build it like a temple, but we're realizing now that that's not a very good way <laughs> of seeing the work that, that happens in museums. It's not a sacred space, really. It's, it's a, it's a practice. It's a, it's a thing that's constantly changing. So. Yeah. Although it is, or at least with like the field museum and the museum campus in Chicago there, mm -hmm. it is also a historical moment as well. So yeah. you kind oh, of yeah. like think about it that way, that it was the mm -hmm. second world's fair that occurred in yeah. Chicago was when that mm -hmm. was built. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, there's a, there's ways that museums can recognize like the history of it and then challenge it at the same time. So um uh, a lot of exhibits today, or one of the practices, ways people do that today in exhibits is by um, inviting contemporary artists or inviting different people to either reinterpret the exhibit space or reinterpret things in the collections and present those things side by side. Um, uh, there's an example of an exhibit called Mining the Museum, which is really famous. This was, I think, done in the 90s. It's, it's been a while, or early 2000s. I can't remember exactly, but it was a case in which um, someone came in and, and uh, really juxtaposed the things in collections and, pre and presented them in new and, and unique ways that got people to think about the museum itself as a practice. Because a lot of times when you're in the exhibit space, you're thinking about the topic of the exhibit and you kind of forget that a museum, like we said, is doing the thing. So it kind of helped people um, uh, think about what it means to be on exhibit and and uh, what happens in those cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so something you mentioned earlier that I want to go back to um, mm -hmm. is that when you were a kid, you enjoyed going to museums. You oh, enjoyed yeah. roaming yes. around. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what exactly about them piqued your interest? It was a couple things. So there were, I definitely had was obsessed with house museums at one point. <laughs> so I don't work really. I mean, the reason I volunteered in the Wiley house was because of my childhood obsession with, with house museums. Um, we visited Charleston, South Carolina a lot when I was a kid, like with my family. And uh, we would take tours of house museums. And I think I was, I don't remember how old I was. I was probably like nine or 10. And we took this walking tour of Charleston and I'd gone on so many house tours at that point that the tour guide is like walking past this historic home and it's like, does anyone know what style this is? I was like, it's Georgian style. <laughs> <laughs> and the tour guide was like, whoa. <laughs> this 10 year old kid is a little bit obsessed with home style. Um, <laughs> I think what, I, what fascinated me about the historic home museums was the fact that I was stepping into, it felt like I was stepping into history. And now being a museum person, I realize that's not what's happening, but mm -hmm. um, like it is an ex part of the experience. It's part of the learning experience and that you are physically stepping into a historic space. And it's one thing to read about history and to read about it in a book and to watch it on TV shows and uh, watch it in movies and uh, to see it maybe on a computer screen. I wasn't really doing it that much at that time, but um, the, but to actually see it physically, like, as a thing 
in mm-hmm. front of you just makes it real. It, ma- it makes it, um, you're like, oh, this thing I've read about is a real thing because I can see it and I can't touch it because you usually can't touch it in museums. Yeah. But, but uh, once you work in museums, you can touch it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Motivation right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the, uh, uh, you can't touch it you know, when you're in space, but I can see it in front of me and that me- means it's a real thing. But then um, that's the same thing with any other museum exhibit I went to. So going to see dinosaurs in a museum or going to see Egyptian mummies, those are the two like most popular things in museums, by the way, is the mummies and the dinosaurs. Yeah, of course. Um, (laughs) Sue in the Field Museum, that's what I Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. because it's a thing people know about and they want to go see it in person and they feel like uh, that, that, that gives them a connection to, to something that they've learned about. And that's, you know, great that museum, that's one of the best things I think about museums is that it gives people access to things that they can't see in a, on daily life. Same thing with uh, different cultures that are presented. Not everyone gets to travel the world and experience mm-hmm. different people and experience different ideas, but you can go to a museum and see objects and see videos of people or see things from all over the world. And, and that makes the world I feel both big and small at the same time. I think that um, you can see there's a huge diversity of people and things in the world, but also now you have a connection to it because you can see it in front of you and that makes it feel a little bit smaller. So I think that that's one of the things I just loved about it. But then also, as I looked back, I, I thought about what my favorite ones were, like what some of my favorite exhibits or things I went to were and one of my favorites in Charleston of, of house museums is a, this place called the Aiken Rett Museum. I still go there sometimes because it's so good. <laughs> but I was like, why did I like that one better than any of the other house? Because there's like five million historic houses in Charleston. So <laughs> why did I like that one better than the other one? And I think one of the reasons was they had a really great audio tour. So like the audio tour um uh, as you were moving around the house, it uh, gave you really personal stories about things that happened in each of those different rooms. And so it, it made things even more personal and made it a pretty immersive experience. But then also, um, I was like, there's something else about that one, I feel like. And it's the fact, it, it's something really simple, but it's something you don't want really to think about that you don't, when you enter that house for that tour, you don't walk in the front door, you walk in the back door. And um, you start from an entirely different perspective. And uh, now, later on, now that I've read about museums, I realized that uh, uh, that's house museums started coming up. And I was like, oh, that's why. So Mm -hmm. it's because when you walk in the front door, you're given a very particular perspective Mm -hmm. of the the rich white person Mm -hmm. that owned that house. And that means the visitor, as they're going through, kind of experiences it from that perspective as a rich white visitor, you know? Mm -hmm. And yes, I am a white person that I've come, I do also come from a very privileged background, but the, the fact that this museum challenged me to look at that space from a different perspective without me even realizing it, mm-hmm. um, like just from a simple thing of, of what, how I walked into the house, I realized how powerful it was that a museum can, can orient a, a visitor's perspective in a certain way like that, that by the time you got to the big grandiose rooms, you realized how big and grandiose they were because you started in the basement and you started, you know, uh, seeing servants' quarters and, and things like that. Um, so by the time you got to the big stuff, you realized the disparity of wealth that, that happened in that house. Um, 
and then as far as other exhibits, I think it was just the ones that, that gave me the most personal sort of connections to, to people or to, to history uh, any time that I felt like I could see myself in the thing that I was, uh, was looking at, and either because that thing was so different from me or because it was exactly the same, that that's why I, I loved it so much. So that's what really drew me to, to museums early on. Like I said, I wanted to do pre-med when I went to graduate school. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know why I thought that was such a good idea. <laughs> but then when I got, I, the first time I interned in a museum uh, was at the Mathers Museum, the museum that I now work at. Because I went to DePaul, which is, you know, an hour north of, of the Mathers. So mm -hmm. I, I went down for a, an internship. And museum storage, I think this is the, one of the perks of curators mm -hmm. uh, museum storage is like my favorite place in the entire world because you know for everyone going to museums you see all this great stuff that's on exhibit and you get to experience things that are on exhibit but like it's like an iceberg like the, <laughs> that's like two yeah. percent that's two percent of what a museum usually has or even less sometimes is on exhibit so um storage everything's in one spot and mm -hmm. you can just see everything on shelves or see it on cabinets and and um it's a really cool feeling being in that space. So first time I walked into museum stores, I was like, oh. plus I'm a very organized person. So museums are very organized. They put stuff on shelves and they label <laughs> yeah, them. And I was yeah, like, this yeah. is great. This is, this yeah. is what I need to do. <laughs> yeah, I um, actually, an undergrad at Indiana University, I took museum studies. And so mm -hmm. I got to put together, you know, with other classmates an exhibit at Mathers Museum. Oh, so yeah. I also had the privilege. That was my one and only time I've been <laughs> in museum storage. But yeah, it's pretty remarkable how much mm -hmm. they have there. You know, you have to put on your white gloves to yeah, yeah, pick yeah. up things. And yeah, it's cool. Yeah. And, and, and it's different. D different museums do it differently. Um, Mathers is actually it's you know mid-size you know stuff like that but um some some museums <clears throat> pardon me some museums don't let visitors in storage at all like even if it's class you know that's one of the things i love about undergraduate or university museums that are involved in undergraduate teaching is how museum collections can be worked into curriculum uh because that again that 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 makes the museum a more active space but it just means there's more people experiencing uh, the stuff that's in, in the museums and even the, the collections that are on exhibit and bringing new insights to it. So this past semester, I was a teaching assistant for uh, Professor Jason Bear Jackson's folklore uh, museums and material culture course. So it's an undergraduate folklore course on museums and material culture, as the title suggests. Um, uh, but it was a group of about 15 undergrads and it was a writing intensive course. So that, that basically meant that there were a lot of people there that were there to fulfill their writing requirement and not necessarily because they were super interested mm -hmm. in museums and material culture before they started, but they were all really receptive to it, which was great. But um, so for a lot of them, it was their first time ever like working with museum collections for the large majority of them, or even ever really thinking about material culture as a, a thing, like what, mm -hmm. what they could learn from objects. And so what we did was we had all the students submit interest statements on like just a topic, not even related necessarily to museums, just a thing like out there in the world that was interesting to them, whether it was like a place in the world that was interesting or an activity that they do, you know, or something. And um, we tried to match them up. I worked with the chief curator, Ellen Sieber, to, to match them up with collections. 
that they could research themselves that they might find it more interesting to them because yes, we could just give them anything random, but, mm-hmm. but we kind of, because these people, a lot of them were new to it. We wanted them to work on some a topic that was interesting. So, you know, we had a fashion design student and she worked with a collection of Ottoman style jackets or Ottoman period jackets. Um, and I'm not, you know, I've, I'd seen these things before. I've learned a little bit about them because it's from this really fabulous collection called the D. Birnbaum collection at the Mathers. And had learned a little bit about them. There's someone there who, uh, another grad student, who's writing her dissertation on this collection. You know, uh, we'd heard a lot about them. But this this girl was a fashion design major. And so she started looking at things like seams, you know, and, and embroidery. And she was noticing how the embroidery on the outside was really... Uh, detailed and really like finely done and she could tell like it took a lot of time based on her own experience this took a lot of time to do this embroidery it was with like metal wrapped thread so it was like Mm -hmm. gold thread on the outside but then she looked at the inside and she's like these seams are a mess (laughs) (laughs) she was noticing like how the jacket was constructed Uh on the inside was very different than how it looked on the outside so one of um what part of my job as a teaching assistant was I was helping to mentor some of these students on their, their research projects. And so I was like, well, why do you think that is? Why do you think it's messy on the inside, but it's, it's really detailed on the outside and um, how do you construct garments? And she started thinking about how it's like, Oh, this might mean that the, the person who does the embroidery is different than the person who makes the jacket, you know, and that they might put it together. So it fits the person, but it has to grow with them. And so it changes like, you know, over their life and and so she got to use her experience to uh really like work with this collection that she never thought that she would have worked with before and her project turned out great and everyone else in the class was doing similar things like someone was said they were interested in fishing and like they do fishing in their spare time and this is the thing where they probably didn't realize like how specific we were going to be like (laughs) so this guy said he was interested in fishing I was like well great we'll give you some fishing nets (laughs) 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 so gave him some fishing nets from like people in in south america um and uh someone else said they were fascinated by the idea of backpacks and so we gave them carrying bags from like different cultures around the world or you know stuff like that so there were so many opportunities to uh people to learn from objects in ways that were relevant to their lives which is what i loved about that course so Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So kind of thinking about, we'll use this as a um, closeout question, I guess, if we will. (laughs) Uh, We'll see if I follow up, but we'll Mm -hmm. think of this as a closeout. Uh So as a side question, did you go to like traditional public school growing up? So this, uh, this, I was thinking about this too. And when you gave me your sample questions for Mm -hmm. this, about like my idea of what education is Mm -hmm. and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. I've had so many different types of education. So um, I went to a church preschool, like so a a preschool at a church that so that was a very particular kind of thing. Um, And then I went to a Montessori school, like a private Montessori school for my uh, elementary, Mm -hmm. which was very, you know, student driven. I wouldn't say at least from now what I know about Montessori schools, this wasn't the most like Montessori Montessori, Mm -hmm. like it, it wasn't very strictly Montessori, but it was very student driven I did a lot of like independent stuff as a as a student I didn't have any grades you know um, my teachers were uh, usually we didn't have everyone doing the same thing at the same time you know that sort of thing and I, I really credit that that school ABC Stewart in Columbus Indiana <laughs> um, if, um, 
if I credit that school with a lot of my, you know, approach to, to, to learning, I think, and my sort of independent approach to learning. And, um, you know, I had teachers that gave me like Pride and Prejudice, you know, when I was to read when I was really young, you know, <laughs> and, and because they recognized like, hey, this girl's good at reading and she likes this stuff. So let's give her some stuff that'll challenge her, you know, and um, uh, gave, really helped me develop in that way. So I, I did Montessori school until junior high and high school when I went to a public school um, in Columbus. But I was in mostly honors and AP classes at that point. So that was a slightly different um, experience. Then I went to a private liberal arts college, a very small liberal arts college, DePauw, where it was very, I don't think I had a single lecture course. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, most, it was really discussion-based, uh, most of their courses there. And um, I was in a program called Honor Scholars, which wasn't like honors classes. It wasn't like advanced classes. It was you took uh, five seminars over the course of your uh, four years there. And they were all on sort of interdisciplinary topics. And the idea was to create connections between different um, departments mm -hmm. and think interdisciplinary and think critically. And at the end, you had to write an 80-page thesis, I think it was. And so I wrote my thesis. At that point, I'd started to figure out I liked museums. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so I wrote my thesis on um, the presentation of Africa in Midwestern museums. Mm. Uh, so I went to a lot of different museums and did studies on their exhibits and, and interviewed curators and things like that. And now I'm at IU, you know, for graduate school mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at a big research one, you know, public university, which is again, a different, you know, approach to things, but grad school is very different than the undergrad experience mm -hmm. here at IU. So I think a lot sometimes about like if I'd gone to IU, which I got accepted to for, because mm -hmm. I'm from Indiana, you know, um, if I'd gone, gone to IU for my undergrad, I probably would be pre-med or would have mm -hmm. done pre-med and would have been a doctor, you know, but because I was forced to, <laughs> to Paul, take an anthropology class and then loved it and, you know, mm -hmm. decided to do that, that's, that's kind of something that also set me on my path. Interesting. Yeah. So now you're making me think that I should ask every of my <laughs> podcast guests their um k through 12 experience if they had any you know obviously some people would be home educated and whatnot yeah 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 um mm -hmm. because i but, i do think i mean i guess i can't project this on you and this might not no. be true but just this idea of being able to be independent and questioning mm -hmm. you don't i mean that's not a typical experience at a no, traditional no, no. public yeah. school yeah um i mean the I don't remember like a whole lot of specifics of like some of the assignments I did in Montessori. I remember certain things like we had these grammar boxes that we had like <laughs> structure sentences with and we mm -hmm. took like times tests. You know, I remember some of the activities and everything. What I remember most is that the large, like I would say all of my teachers, yeah, all my teachers kind of um, really individualized the education mm -hmm. to, to different students. Mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, that's where my passion for reading, you know, really started was at that school, but also why I um, learned math, I think, so quickly was, was their approach and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's not like I took anthropology as an undergrad mm -hmm. or as a, a in, in K through 12, yeah. but um, it, I think that that approach really did help with the critical thinking aspect that became so important at, in undergrad and then in grad school. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we can leave it there. Thank you so much, Kristen. Yeah, this was super fun. Thank you. All right, great. Thanks mm -hmm. for coming on. Mm -hmm.